Welcome to the Thirsty Podcast, episode 11. Uh, my name is Jeremy Lightning, and I'm here with Pastor Michael Zarling. And uh, today we are going to cover chapters 4 through 8 of the prophet Amos, the Old Testament prophet. Uh, so we'll kick things off and keep them moving. All right. So it begins with Amos chapter 4 of, Listen to this, you cows of Bashan. You are on the mountain of Samaria. So Bashan is uh, east of Galilee, east of the Jordan River. It was famous as cattle country. So, Pastor Lightning, what do you have to say about the cows of Bashan? Uh, It's not politically correct language at all, uh, but it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, And and that's kind of the neat thing about verbal inspiration is that the Lord is the one who gave the words, but he gave the words through human instruments. And uh, I always like the comparison of, uh, of, of musical instruments that the same musician may be playing through a recorder or a clarinet or uh, a trombone, but uh, it's always a little bit different when it comes through whatever the instrument is. And uh, that's kind of how God is working here. Um, you have a very, again, uh, picture in, invoking and uh, earthy type of talk that Amos uses. And uh, he, he takes a pretty direct shot at, uh, I just thought of uh, the, the new term that's developed, uh, Karen. Yeah. Is it, yeah. Isn't it kind of like he's maybe talking to some Karens here of uh, sort of well-to-do middle-class, upper-class women who uh, think that they are great savers or heroes of humanity, but in in reality, they are oppressive and unpleasant to be around. Yeah. And so if you didn't catch it, that Amos is calling the women cows, the cows of Bashan, uh, you women who are oppressing the poor, who are crushing the needy, who say to your husbands, bring us more drinks. So he's saying that these women are like cattle. It's, again, not very flattering picture, but as Pastor Lightning said, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the idea here is you've got these wealthy women of Samaria who are forcing their husbands to serve them drinks, to bring them food. And then that's causing the husbands to uh, crush the needy. And that whole idea of the cows of Bashan made me think of this, Pastor Lightning. Have you heard about cow cuddling? No. Yeah. So that's a, it's not a new thing, but it was something I read about yesterday. So there are people that are paying $75 for an hour to go up to a cow and cuddle this cow. And they're supposed to receive all this comfort from it. And the sad thing is a couple of reasons is you've got extra money to spend on cuddling cows and these people are so lonely that some have said in the article that this was the only physical contact they had with anyone or anything for an entire year. That uh, you just reminded me of a, uh, one of my favorite comedians I heard has a bit that he talks about where he says that um, there are massage therapists who can refuse service, that, that they say we have the right to refuse service. And he just pointed out, so in other words, uh, you, you tell somebody that you could not pay me enough money to, to touch you. 
Yeah. And, you know, I grew up on a farm. And so we had cattle and sheep and we had chickens. I have a picture of my dad from black and white picture of a chicken that he had tamed to sit on his shoulder. And we were always taught, you know, we might have a cow that we would pat and a sheep you might cuddle with, but not to get too comfortable with them because come spring the next year, those animals are going to be in the freezer. But the point of saying all this is, are we in America like those men and women of Bashan, that we have so much extra income and we become uh, overweight, lazy, and then we go and we spend our money on what might be considered frivolous things. Cow cuddling. Cow cuddling. Uh, and th- that that really hits the nail on the head uh, because, uh, yeah, they, they want to maintain a certain standard of living. Uh, the wives do, and the husbands want to please their wives. And uh, th- th- there's not one gender that's more at fault here than another. Uh, but in the verses just following, um, I know we've kind of kicked this episode off with a lot of lighthearted banter and joking, but... Um, it gets pretty serious as you get into verses three and four. Uh, God more or less says through Amos, uh, your standard of living might be nice now, but uh, you're going to be dragged out of the city as prisoners of war with fish hooks and meat hooks uh, pulling you through your nose, uh, through the broken down walls of your city. Uh, a very tragic ending to, um, to to the lifestyles that you wanted to live so nicely. Yeah, it says he's gonna be, they're going to be thrown out into Harmon, and we don't really know what that is, probably a garbage dump. And again, uh, applying that to ourselves, have we as Christians in America become lazy and lethargic in our faith? faith? Have we become complacent? That even the poorest of us in America are still wealthier than the majority of people who have ever lived on the face of this earth. And what do we do with that wealth? It's usually not much good for God's kingdom. Uh, And then verses 4 and 5, God God says to Amos, Go to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every day. Burn some leavened bread and a thank offering. Proclaim your voluntary offerings. Uh, Amos is using irony here. Bethel was where a false altar was set up to the Lord as an alternate to Jerusalem. Uh, And what was going on is the more that they were worshiping at Bethel, uh, they were also worshiping a false god. They were mixing the orthodox or true worship to the true God with their pagan or false worship. God is using irony, telling them to do something to show them this is how bad of an idea it is. It would be like if uh, one of our teenagers of Pastor Layton and myself thought, hey, Dad, would it be a good idea to stick my tongue on this frozen light pole? And then Pastor Layton and I said, yeah, that would be a really good idea. Why don't you go ahead and do that? Try try that. See how it works out for you. Exactly. It's kind of like... um Jesus is telling the the Pharisees in the Gospels, 
uh, go ahead and fill up the measure of wrath. There's a certain limit that God has before he will finally take vengeance. Uh, and, and Jesus calls that a measure. And, and he tells the teachers of the law and Pharisees, go ahead and fill up the measure of your fathers. Uh, see if you can uh, sin as much as they do. Uh, and, and maybe you even get a little sense of like the book of Revelation where it talks about um, uh, I, I wish you would do something, either good or bad. God doesn't really want us to sin, but uh, he, he doesn't want us to ride the fence either. He, he wants us to, to be decisive, uh, and, and thanks to uh, the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we can, uh, we can make decisions to, to do things that are pleasing to God, um, but uh, that's, that's going to be a thing that develops throughout these next several chapters that uh, if God hands you over to evil to do what you want, it is not a pretty picture. Right. And then he goes on in verses six through 11, as he lays out some of the chastisements that the Lord is bringing on Israel. Verse six, he sent a famine and verse six has a striking image. It says, I am the one who gave to you clean teeth in all your cities and lack of food in all your places. So that's talking about dental hygiene, right? Yeah. You know, flossing and having an electric <laughs> toothbrush. No, it's saying that your, te- your teeth are clean because you have nothing to eat. Uh, verses 7 and 8, he brought a drought, but not everywhere at once. Verse 9, he, he sent blight and mildew on the crops, and he sent locusts. Verse 10, he... Uh, made sure that Im- that Israel was embroiled in warfare. And then verse 11, the Lord had destroyed many of them. And if some had been saved, it was only by his grace. And with all of these chastisements to his chosen people, God is calling them to return, but they don't listen. And I liken that to maybe a lady who keeps smoking despite having lung cancer. Or the man who keeps drinking despite having psoriasis of the liver. Or the teenager who keeps returning to the boyfriend or girlfriend despite the way that he or she is negatively treated. And we need to look into our lives and see the negative results of our sinful behavior. That God can use these results as chastisements. Not to drive us away from him, but he is driving us to our knees to return to the foot of the cross, uh, to take advantage of his patience and not be like Israel who were abusing his patience. I, I think all the rest that I would have to say about chapter four is just that uh, you get a strong sense that uh, of what people still do today, which is we assume that God would take my side of the, whatever argument there is, that, that I'm on the side of justice, I am on the side of what is right, and it's the other people that are in the wrong. And uh, God makes it pretty clear that uh, he doesn't look like anybody's friend in this chapter. Everything is, is threats, and behind it all is a beating heart of love that uh, our Heavenly Father wants us to return to him. Uh, but he has some uh, strong ways of warning us. Right. Then we go on to chapter 5, and he says, uh, Listen to this word I'm raising against you, a house of Israel. Virgin Israel has fallen, and she will not rise again. Pastor Lightning, do you remember the old life alert commercial? You know, I've fallen and I can't get up. <laughs> Okay, that's what's happening here to the northern kingdom of Israel. And verse 3, Amos points out the total defeat. 
that nine out of ten will march out, but only one will survive. And so this is showing just uh, God's chastisement, his judgment on his people again. The uh, verses 7, 8, and uh, following there uh, talk about um, astronomical forms, the, the stars and uh, the things that God has created. But uh, what is it that we so often do? We take the creatures or creations of God and assume that they are the things that can guide us and that uh, uh, will give us the clearest messages from him. Uh, And that's simply not the case. We might not worship the stars or constellations anymore, um, but, uh, but, but we still are enamored with, um, well, with, with scientific study, and we think that uh, that, that is infallible when, in fact, uh, it, it, it's full of fallacies. And in verse 14, God says, Seek good and not evil so that you may live, and then it will be like this for you. The Lord, the God of armies, will be with you as you claim. Uh, that the Israelites were blindly overlooking the wicked things they were doing and felt secure, like you said. They thought God was with them. And again, applying it to our lives, we may think that God is with us as we go along with our daily lives. Lives that are often lived apart from God, apart from his word, his will, his law as a mirror, his gospel of forgiveness, his law as a guide. And we just go on our own lives thinking God is with us But again, not comparing ourselves to God's will or comparing ourselves to what God has to say on the subject. In verse uh, 16, it talks about the professional mourners. And uh, this is something that uh, I don't know if you've had uh, a lot of contact with um, some of our foreign missionaries, but I I know of a, a... synodical worker who has uh, lived in Africa and he's talked about how this is still something that is done uh, in Africa and a lot of the African countries they will get um, it, there are women who that this is their job they go from uh, funeral to funeral and they help to uh, sort of foster a uh, a, a mournful mood they they can sort of turn it on and off a, a, on a whim and start start weeping and crying and i was thinking about now why would you want that um but maybe it is because uh ancient people knew something that we don't often recognize today and that is that it's good to let your emotions out and maybe if you have somebody who's good at letting emotions out uh, it can help you to sort of uh, purge your emotions um i don't know if i have a a really deep application point here from the text, but uh, this is what verse 16 is discussing. And with that, uh, Amos is saying that uh, not only will the professional mourners wail, but the farmers are going to be called in from the fields. Uh, Those that are harvesting the grapes are going to be called in. Verses 18 through 20 I found interesting that Amos says, Woe to those who long for the day of the Lord. What good will the day of the Lord be for you? Uh, The people thought that when bad times were coming, they could just hope and pray that the Lord's day would come. But Amos warns them that in their present state, because they're living in impenitent sin, then the Lord's day is going to be one of wrath and woe. That if they continue in their impenitence, then the Lord's day is going to be worse, worth, or worse than anything that they had seen before. He says, it's kind of going to be like uh, a man uh, going out of the frying pan and into the fire. 
So there he says in verses 19 and 20 that the Israelites are like a man who runs away from a fierce lion. You know, they're present troubles, only to meet a more dangerous bear the day of the Lord. Or like someone who finally reaches home, takes a deep breath because it's the day of the Lord. Uh, They think they found safety, but then they lean up against a wall and there's a poisonous snake, God's judgment that strikes from the hole in the wall. And I think this is a good reminder for us as we see our culture going further and further away from God. And we rightly should pray, come Lord Jesus, come. But are we really prepared? Because if he comes and we're impenitent, then something far worse than our culture is coming. That's what Jesus said, always be on the watch. Uh, Peter said, dear friends, as you look forward to these things, make every effort to be found in peace, spotless, blameless in his sight. It's it's kind of like uh, I know I know I did this a lot as a, a kid in school and uh, if you've got a test tomorrow or or even as an adult now if you've got some conflict or situation the next day that you don't really want to face uh, there's that little thought that pops into your head well maybe judgment day will come tonight and then and then I don't have to worry about whatever that problem is tomorrow uh, because we'll all be in heaven. Um, and the point of these verses is, uh, are you sure? Uh, can, you, can you say that so confidently? Uh, the answer in Christ is yes, uh, but uh, don't just assume that uh, without any thought or without any consideration of it, uh, without repentance, that uh, the day of the Lord will be a better thing for you than whatever the test is tomorrow. And what Amos is driving home in these chapters is that uh, Israel is characterized from the very beginning that they worshipped uh, false idols at the same time as they worshipped and brought sacrifices to the true God. They thought that they could do both successfully, but they couldn't because God would, uh, would not allow it. He alone is God. So what characterizes us as American Christians? I think... Uh, Laxity, lethargy, lukewarmness characterize our brand of 21st century American Christianity. Uh, Some examples that we may say that we're active members of a church, but then we are going to skip worship if it's really bad weather out or it's really nice weather out. If there's a soccer tournament or there's overtime pay or a vacation planned or a whole host of other things. So often we think that we are so much different than Israel of old, but I I wonder because we cannot do both successfully. We need to worship the true God and then, uh, or we need to give ourselves over to the false gods of our own making. And that's also the point in uh, verses 21 and following where it says that you, you might, like you were saying, uh, you might be an active church member, and, and you might even be uh, in worship. You might even be participating in uh, the singing or the, the communing. And uh, God says to his Old Testament people, I hate, I reject your festivals. Uh, in other words, when they do it without faith, uh, when they do it thoughtlessly uh, or without trusting confidently in, in God's mercy, uh, then it is just de- detestable to him. Do you have anything else on chapter 5? I think that 
is about it. All right, because I want to carry on with the complacency when we move on to chapter 6. Because Amos says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. That's Jerusalem, uh, the southern kingdom. You who feel secure on Mount Samaria. That's Israel. So Amos is not impartial in his condemnation. Uh, that both of these nations, Israel and Judah, had become complacent in their faith. And so I ask everyone who's listening, have you become complacent in your faith? You know, uh, I try to do a lot of biking during the year. I finally got my bike out of the garage because the snow is almost melted here. And I got in a couple of rides today. I biked to church and so forth. And I need all of those short rides of 12 to 20 miles a day that I do with my daughters and my friends because uh, that prepares me for the 100-mile one-day bike rides that I did last year and hopefully want to do this year because I always tell people when they ask, why do you bike so much? I say, I don't want to be the fat pastor. (laughs) Uh, Because as pastors, we can live complacent lives just sitting at our desks, that we are uh, at our computers, we're on our phones, And we need to keep moving. And that's the thing we need to do as Christians, too. We need to keep moving in our faith. Uh, Keep uh, coming to worship, uh, receiving the sacrament, private confession, talking about the faith as you leave church uh, so that we're not complacent. And just keep on taking those little, for me, 10 to 12 mile rides to get ready for the when God calls you to do something big, like a 100 mile ride, when you are prepared with those little daily exercises of faith when God calls you to do something really big and drastic, like a parent is sick, a a family member dies, or anything like that. You're ready because you've been training this whole time. And what I uh, like about your analogy is that... uh, you, it, it, it's a lot like our physical bodies. Um, when you go to confession, as you say, and receive absolution from your pastor in private, or you, you receive communion or hear the preaching of the gospel, um, those are all things that are kind of like uh, meals. They are, they are the food for your soul. Uh, but what is, what is the exercise part? Where is it that your spiritual muscles get to uh, stretch and, and maybe push some weight a little bit or pedal the bike, in, as your case may be? Uh, it, it, it's really uh, going out and boldly interacting with other human beings. Because what happens when you go and, and you know, you try to strike up a conversation with your neighbor or the, the person across the street, when you go to uh, the shopping center and actually try to engage in conversation with people, you find they might not be as pleasant as you thought, or they're not as easy to talk to as you thought. And it's actually hard work to try and be social. Um, uh, but that's, that's where the, that's the, that's the exercising part of the analogy. And then when you fail at that social interaction with fellow human beings, or maybe you succeed to some extent, but sooner or later you're going to see your weakness and sinfulness. That's when you go back and you receive more of the nourishing good news of Christ. Yeah, and so Pastor Lightning, you know, when are you going to come biking with me? Uh, I just wanted to point out, did you say a few minutes ago something about laxatives? I did not. I said laxity. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I th- thought I heard something else. <laughs> uh, what, what else do you have on these middle verses? I have not 
got on a bicycle for five years, I think. Well, I'll let you borrow one of mine. My wife, I, I have one. It's just okay. I haven't gotten on it. I have. I think I have four or five bikes for myself, okay. just just for <laughs> me. So I can let you borrow one of those bikes. Okay, I, I'll try one out. All right. So what else do you want to talk about with uh, in it, the middle versus? Just the, I've got something with the, the standard end. of living again. It's that standard of living where Amos describes. Uh, how you, you're lying on your ivory beds. That doesn't sound comfortable, but maybe that's what we need to think of today. Just lying in comfort, uh, lounging on your couch uh, or your bed and eating eating fine food, the lambs from the flock, calves straight from the stall, and then improvising tunes. Uh, you could think maybe today of people sort of just strumming guitars uh, and, and uh, thinking, oh, life is just grand. I'm, I'm entertaining myself. I'm drinking large bowls of wine, uh, slathering them Themselves with expensive perfumed oils. I have five bikes. What? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> your five bikes. Yeah, uh, but uh, but that is why they will go into exile as the first of the exiles. Uh, those who sprawl out at their feasts for for the dead will depart. And that's exactly what I wanted to finish up with this chapter too. Is that Israel and Judah are boasting about their wealth, and Amos calls them out on that. And again, applying that to ourselves, we have been blessed with tremendous wealth as Americans. So a good question to reflect on for ourselves is, do we wrap ourselves so tightly in the soft cocoon of luxury in our homes, phones, vehicles, binge watching and social media that we live lives that are unaware of what's going on in our community? Because Others are living with a lack of food, a lack of clothing. They do not have a roof over their heads. Again, here in America, we are blessed with relative peace and safety to worship. But do we pray for the Christians around the world who are suffering terrible persecution at the hands of God's enemies? Do we spend so generously on ourselves that we have little left for the support of our church or our church bodies, ministry of sharing the means of grace? Are we coming to worship ourselves and then are we going out so that, as you said, we're carrying on conversations so we can invite others to know Jesus better and worship with us in church? And if the answer to any of those questions might possibly be a yes, then Jesus is reproving us for our unbelief. He warns us with the words he spoke to the unbelieving elders of the Jews. That is why I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces its fruit. So one last thought on this chapter. So Amos, in, in math terms, he's describing an equation for the death of God's people. Uh, inward moral decay plus pride in outward success equals destruction. That, that pretty well sums it up, I would say. Uh, I, I guess uh, there's this little uh, mystery with uh, verse 10 when it says, when a relative who burns the bodies comes to take away the bones from the house, he will say to whoever remains in the recesses of the house, is there anyone else still with you? And they will say, no one. And he will say, silence for you must not invoke the name of the Lord. Uh, I think the picture there is really, that, that's how angry God gets. That uh, the whole 
household has been wiped out except for maybe one person and the uh, the funeral director comes in to take out the dead bodies and uh, somebody says, oh, there's still one of us alive. Bring and, out your dad. Yeah, bring, bring out, out your dad. <laughs> I, I thought of that too. But, uh, but, the, but then the funeral director says, oh, don't say the name the Lord because if you say... Jesus, or you say the Lord, well, they wouldn't have said Jesus, but if you say the Lord or you say God's name, that will bring him here because he comes to be where his name is. And he is, he is such a vengeful God right now that, uh, I don't even want to risk calling him to this place, uh, because, because of his great anger. Uh, why, why don't we move on to chapter seven? All right. So, Chapters 7 through 9 contain five visions. And there are three visions in chapter in chapter 7. So if you're following along, verses 1 through 3, there is a vision that the Lord is preparing locusts to ravage the crops. And then there's a lesson with each one of these visions. The lesson is that Amos prays that the Lord will relent, change his mind, and because otherwise Israel could not survive. But, and the Lord did answer Amos' prayer. Then verses 4 through 6, there's another vision. The Lord was about to burn his people's fields and dry up the springs of water. The lesson was that Amos prayed that the Lord would relent, for Israel could not survive. And the Lord answered Amos' prayer. And then verses 7 through 9 is the third vision. The Lord himself appears standing next to a wall. God is holding a plumb line in his hand. What is... That picture of a plumb line. Uh, well, I would think today of the uh, the level. If you're if you're a woodworker, or carpenter of any kind, uh, that you take uh, the the level that has the little bubble inside of the uh, fluid, and it tells you once that bubble is in between the two uh, hash marks that uh, you have uh, something that is that is level and and flat and even on the surface. Right, and then. In their culture, what they would have used then is a lead weight at the end of a string. You stand up at the top and you would drop that string with the weight down and it would show if it's uh, vertical, straight up and down, or if it's leaning. And what God is saying is that uh, the plumb line is against Israel's immorality. They are crooked. And just like any good... Stonemason or bricklayer would tear down the wall. That's what God threatens to do. So the lesson is uh, that the house of Israel was morally out of plumb, and the Lord would destroy it like a stonemason would destroy a sagging wall. And the picture I have in my mind is as Pastor Lightning and I might drive around uh, Wisconsin, I see lots of red barns all over the place, but. You know, some of these older barns, they're, they're sagging. They're not plumb anymore. They're, they're leaning and they're dangerous to enter into. And so what needs to happen is that farmer needs to eventually go in there, tear it down and rebuild it. And the picture then for us is the same. You know, look at your life. Uh, that's, that's confession. Uh, are you out of plumb? Uh, you know, how are you doing with the plumb line of not hating, stealing, coveting, gossiping, loving your enemy, praying for those who persecute us, taking words and actions in the kindest possible way. How do your your words and thoughts and actions measure up with the plumb line of 
God's law and, and his commandments. And what you need to do is tear down daily, uh, every day, because every day we get uh, out of plumb. And that's what Luther writes in his catechism on the meaning of baptism for our daily life. It says that it means our old Adam with his evil deeds and desires should be drowned by daily contrition and repentance and die. And that day by day, a new man should arise as from the dead through baptism to live in the presence of God in righteousness and purity now and forever. I I was actually also just thinking of uh, Martin Luther and I, I'm not going to be able to place it exactly, but I feel like it might be in the small called articles where he talks similarly about how um, you you have to become an entirely new person. And he says, John the Baptist preached this message. Be you, you have to be completely cut down and rebuilt. It's not going to work to take one of those sagging barns and try to uh, cobble together a, a new structure on top of the old crooked one. It has to be completely uh, drowned uh, in in your baptism, as you pointed out, and uh, and and re and rebuilt anew. And and then you have something worthwhile. Um, the one thing I wanted to talk a little bit about in the first half of chapter seven is the idea of God repenting. Uh, and the, the EHV translates this a couple of times as the Lord changed his decree about this. Um, this is also the way that the Old Testament talks with Noah in the uh, book of Genesis, where he says uh, I, I w- that the Lord was grieved that he had created mankind on the earth, and that's why he sent the flood. It's the same word there, and um, it, it's kind of a mystery for us to try to f- to, uh, to fathom that we never really will be able to. How can God uh, decide one thing and then change his mind about it when what he says automatically goes? Um, and uh, there's a good way to think about this, and that is, if I can get this axiom right, CFW Walter had a bunch of axioms. One of them said, uh, when it talks about God feeling emotions, you should understand it to mean that mankind began to uh, feel the effects of God's emotions. And, and maybe that's a good way to talk about this here, that uh, it, from our perspective, it looks like God is having a change of mind. And I think there's also a lot of comfort in that, that God doesn't ask us to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. Um, he wants us to have a change of heart. So what does he do? He leads by example and says, uh, I'm going to show you uh, what it looks like to have a change of mind. And then toward the end of this chapter, you've got Amaziah, who is the priest of Bethel. So Bethel is uh, the southern end of of Israel, and real close to the border of Judah. And He's a false priest, so he's worshiping false gods, and he is charging Amos with being a prophet for hire, and he tells him to stop preaching. And again, applying that to ourselves, what should we do when people tell us us to stop preaching in God's name? Uh, We must obey God rather than men, just like Amos did. Because you've heard me say this over and over again in this podcast, that we are living in a culture right now in America that is becoming more and more hostile to preaching and proclaiming God's name. I found an example of that this week in a news story of a former student at Georgia Gwinnett College. 
that he was told in 2016 that he would have to use one of the two speech zones on the campus if he wanted to share his Christian faith. He complied, but within minutes of beginning to speak in that reserved zone, campus police told him to stop speaking. Well, the reason this was in the news was on Monday, the United States Supreme Court ruled 8-1 to one that Georgia Gwinnett College had violated this student's First Amendment rights. And so uh, my encouragement to you is to follow the example of Amos, to follow Jesus' directive when he says, be on guard against people. They will hand you over to councils and they will whip you in their synagogues. You will be brought into the presence of governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Whenever they hand you over, do not be worried about how you'll respond or what you will say because what you say will be given to you in that hour. In fact, you will not be the one speaking, but the spirit of your father will be speaking through you. So uh, if we were to follow the example of the prophet Amos, um, do, do you think it would be advisable if a, a authority figure like the president or the governor of your state tells you to cease and desist sharing your Christian faith? Uh, do you think we should respond like verse 17 and say, this is what the Lord says, your wife will be a prostitute in the city <laughs> and your sons and your daughters are going to die. Uh, that, that's, that's some pretty strong language that uh, Amos fired right back at uh, Jeroboam and Amaziah um, when they told, I, I did think of what you, what you said uh, about, what's interesting is that Amaziah and Jeroboam uh, sort of end up making it look like Amos is um, uh, practicing insurrection, that he's, uh, what do you call it? Um, he's guilty of uh, tre treachery? Treason. Treason, yeah. You're guilty of treason for sharing your faith. Um, and, and I think that's something that's very possible and likely today, that uh, just by speaking God's word faithfully uh, that people could twist your words into a, a court case that makes it look like you're guilty of undermining the government. Right. And, and that's the encouragement is you just keep preaching. Unbelievers are going to twist whatever you say. And, and so you just keep saying it. You just uh, preach the truth. I was talking in Bible study this morning uh, and I brought up uh, Pastor Hagen interviewing Professor Poston from Martin Lutheran College on apologetics. And I don't remember the three questions that pa Pastor uh, Poston had on uh, how to do apologetics. But the idea was just ask questions. And we have a retired teacher that was at Bible study today, and he said he learned that in the classroom. Instead of telling someone to be quiet, he'd ask them, why are you talking? And the student would go, I don't know why I'm talking. <laughs> yep. okay? And the idea then is just to challenge people. But challenge them by asking questions. I had someone in my office last week that uh, didn't like the Wisconsin Synod's doctrine, which is the biblical doctrine of close communion, that only members that we were in agreement with are going to take communion with us. And I just ex I asked him questions. Well, why would you say this? And then I laid out what Scripture said. I asked him a question, laid out what Scripture said, and then used an illustration and an application. And then he said, Oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Oh, yeah, I'm in agreement with you. Mm -hmm. And something that has been bothering him for years, just by letting him wrestle with it gently with a question and then sharing God's word, 
And then he was ready to become a communicant member of our congregation. Wonderful. Um, in chapter 8, uh, you um, sort of find uh, Amos maybe not being the most capitalist-minded uh, prophet in the Old Testament. Um, he's, it, I think a lot of times, and, and this sort of overlaps with what you what we've been saying before about uh, the standard of living uh, and making money. Uh, he says, listen to this, you who trample on the needy to wipe out the oppressed from the land, uh, who say, when will the new moon be over so that we can sell grain? When will the Sabbath end so that we can open the grain bins? Um, and uh, when, when we make it our, our prerogative, our main objective is, well, we should be making money. We should be making money. We should, you know, be earning an income. Yes, it, uh, God blesses hard work, and He wants us to. Uh, if if you were not going to work, you shall not eat. But uh, at the same time, uh, there's another side to that coin that uh, if if this is your be all and end all, uh, then that's also a false god. Right, uh, verse five, like you said, the new moon was a holiday at the start of a month. So the Israelite businessmen hated Sabbath holidays, which took away time from their dishonest practices. You know, they wanted uh, to have their stores open on the holidays. We talked about that in Bible study. Uh, they, they, the members mentioned two businesses that are closed on Sundays. And I'm not going to ha- give them free advertising by naming them, but if they want to sponsor our podcast, they can. <laughs> uh, but... But they they showed. Now we're trying to make money. <laughs> there you go. Uh, just so we can have more followers on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, but the point was, well, those are successful businesses, and maybe part of that is is because they're trying to put the Lord first and allowing their uh, their customers and their employees to be able to worship on the Sabbath. He blesses your business even when you're not working on it. Yeah. And then also in verse 5, he's talking about merchants cheating by measuring out the grain they were selling with an undersized bushel and weighing the silver they received with an overweight shekel. So yeah, uh, there there is cheating going on. So not only are they cheating God because they're worshiping false gods, they're then cheating their own people. And Amos is showing them in this chapter that God's judgment on them is just. We can compare that to the way a judge might read a charge and formally announce the findings of the jury before pronouncing sentence on a guilty criminal. Uh, it's also a final call to repent. If you look at the book of Jeremiah, who lived at the end of Judah's history, you find the Lord assuring his people that if they repent, then, like Pastor Lightning said, he, God will repent. You know, he'll change his mind and they will be blessed. So even after the exiles had been taken into captivity, the Lord urged the survivors in the land to submit to his will and be saved. His patience lasted to the very end of Israel's freedom and beyond. And and I think we can learn the lesson that uh, from what St. Peter warned the people in Jerusalem. He said, escape from this crooked generation. Or as St. Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, All these things that were happening to them had meaning as examples, and they were written down to warn us to whom the end of the ages has come. So both what uh, what Amos and Peter and uh, Paul are saying is 
you know, when we know the sad history of Israel, we need to take, uh, you know, we need to be aware so we don't repeat it. I just want to clarify what I said before about God relenting or repenting, having his change of mind. And that is uh, sometimes exactly like you said, the Lord says, uh, return to me and I will return to you. In other words, uh, you should know better. My spirit has been working on your heart. Uh, now I, I do need to see a change before I will take action. But uh, thankfully for the way that he converts us and, and continues to call us to repentance, um, he he first says, uh, I will show mercy to you. I will stop punishing you. I will I will be gracious with you. And that change of mind in him sparks the the change of mind in us. Um, the uh, the other application I thought of while you were talking, I was I was listening to what you were saying, uh, and I wanted to make another application, and that is uh, maybe a good way to think of it in today's terms is when you have time off or a day off or a vacation, uh, be fully present in that time uh, of re- rest and relaxation and don't be saying, well, I want to get something else done. I want to accomplish something. I want to do work when I should be resting. Um, uh, that's that's not getting the most out of God's gifts to you. Um, uh, just as you, it would be wrong for you just all the time to be resting and relaxing, uh, that's not getting the most out of God's gifts for you either. Um, it, when it is the new moon festival or the Sabbath or your your time of rest and relaxation, be fully focused on that and don't be thinking of how can I uh, make more money. Pastor Lighton, in verse 11, I think is the most chilling uh, mm-hmm. admonishment on the people. He says, Look, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine into the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but rather a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Why is that such a chilling uh, declaration? Well, I think it's hard for us to grasp exactly why it should be so chilling because we are surrounded by God's words. Everybody thinks, well, I can always go to church anytime and the doors, you know, doors will always be open, always be welcomed. We've got Bibles online. We've got Bibles in our homes. Uh, there, There's God's word everywhere. And we can't imagine what would it be like not to be able to understand it or not to be able to hear it uh, at a moment's notice. Um, and I have a movie analogy for you. All right. If you uh, are familiar with it, do you, would you know a Denzel Washington movie called The Book of Eli? Yes. And uh, that's, I've actually, I think I've preached on this text before from Amos chapter eight, and I sort of made that comparison to the book of Eli. If you're not familiar with the plot, there's this man named Eli played by Denzel Washington, and uh, he is roaming across this post-apocalyptic wasteland where everything has been destroyed and most everybody's dead, uh, but there are little towns of some survivors here and there. And he has this book that is highly coveted by the bad guy. And uh, it's not really clear what the book is until the end of the movie. So I'm going to spoil it. If you want to watch it sometime, you better turn off the podcast now. But uh, here's what happens. Uh, he, He finally gets to the place where he wants to go. And the bad guy had managed to steal his book from him. But the big mystery is that Denzel Washington, uh, Eli, the character, was blind the whole time. Now you spoiled the whole movie. And I did. I warned him, though. And uh, 
and and he could he could do all this cool fighting and everything even though he was blind and the book was entirely in braille and so the bad guy who finally got his hands on it was totally disappointed because he couldn't read it unless you're a blind person who knows braille uh, but uh, the the cool thing is that Eli had the book all memorized, and when he got to where he was going, he could recite it from memory. And as it turns out, the book was a King James copy of the Bible. And uh, the bad guy wanted it so badly because he could use it to control people. Um, and so it's just the opposite of what Christ does for us by setting us free. He doesn't try to control us in his freedom, but uh, that's that's kind of the the famine of the word of God there because nobody knows anything about the Bible. It's an apocalyptic wasteland, except for maybe this one guy who has a Braille copy. That is a really good movie application. Good job. All right. Uh, since you, you since you use that, then I'll use a Luther quote. Uh, sort of switching roles here, uh, that people who refuse the word of the Lord finally cannot hear it because God takes his word away from them. And that was a curse that God brought on Israel. And we have to be warned that it can come on us. Luther said, the preaching of the gospel is not an eternal, lasting, continual teaching, but it is like a passing shower which travels on. Some ground is watered and another place stays dry. It does not return and also does not stand still. Then the hot sun comes and licks up the moisture that still remains. The point is, if we neglect the word that is offered inside our churches, online and worship services and podcasts, personal and family devotions, then that word may pass from our churches, homes and families to others like a summer shower and will not return to us and our children. The time to hear, believe, and follow the word is now, while we live in the day of God's favor. St. Paul gives us this encouragement in 2 Corinthians 6. Look, now is the favorable time. See, now is the day of salvation. Anything else you want to bring up? Well, just a lot of uh, historic uh, students of Lutheranism have uh, looked back and seen just how this happened. If you look at uh, the Holy Land or if you look at Rome and Italy and where Christianity has flourished in the past and more recently, if you look at Germany and the modern state of Christianity, you can see uh, Luther knew what he was talking about. The rain shower of God's grace uh, has moved on and who knows how long, how much longer it will uh, last in our country. So next week, we'll end our study of Amos with chapter 9. Then we'll be studying what Paul has to say to the Judaizers in Galatia. So this is Pastor Zarling with Pastor Greased Lightning. Stay thirsty, my friends. Then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>